Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Well, good morning. So, I um, <clears throat> I have these toddlers living with me right now because I'm a foster parent, and this is now the only thing that I can talk about ever. Uh, so, <laughs> it's just me. You know, Brad said this, but I'm just going to say it again. It's just me at my house, right? So, there's no other adults, and um, I need this, you guys. I need a sounding board, so I'm gonna I'm gonna share. Um, here's the thing. The oldest child is a girl. She's almost three, and the youngest one is 14 months old. And so what happens in our house is that the older one can do a lot of stuff. Like she can um, climb up on a chair and help me cook, and she can play little card games like memory, and she can do crafts. And the little one cannot do any of that stuff, but he wants to. And what he can do is run. And so no matter where she is or what she's doing, he will like lock onto her and then just start running across the house toward her and just barrels right over anything in his path and grabs hold of his sister and just smears his goobery face all over. I think like love looks different when you're little. I don't know. Um, and so every single time he does that, which is like 7,000 times a day, she gets this intense glare in her eyes and screams, no, at the top of her lungs and then shoves him away from her as hard as she can. Poor baby, right? Like he fell off the chair today. And anyway, so there was like blood before breakfast. And so I'm doing a lot of comforting a screaming baby in one arm while I try to calmly yet firmly explain again that we do not shove babies. And you know what? Here's the funny thing. Even though I'm totally heartbroken that this baby is like maybe hurt and maybe he's just like feeling left out. I don't know. But the truth is, I am an older child, and I am pretty sympathetic to her plight, right? <laughs> we have any older children in the congregation today? Let me see. Do you remember being that age? Oh, my word. Do you remember being little? Remember your siblings just coming barreling towards you with a huge grin to try to pinch your arms and grab your stuff? And your mom and dad always saying, be gentle. Be gentle. Don't hurt her. I had a sister. And I'm just like, don't hurt her. She is climbing my face with her tiny baby nail claws to pull out my barrettes. Don't hurt her. Get this monster off of me. Right? Okay. Is it just me? I don't think it can't be. I had this pink bunny. And it was like a little, like a blankie thing with a bunny head on it. Who I love. Like, I still love, truly, and with all my heart. <laughs> and I still can't read the Velveteen Rabbit without weeping because my bunny. Okay. Anyway, and so my sister, her name is Jody. She'll be listening to this. <sighs> but she deserves it. Before she could even walk, she knew that bunny was the sweet spot. Right? 
And once she could walk, just forget it. I'd be sitting on the couch snuggling my buddy, minding my own business. And she would just toddle up to me all slow and tentative like she didn't know what she was doing. And then she would just rip my bunny out of my hands and run to the other room. And my mother wanted me to ignore this behavior. That's what she told me hundreds, thousands of times. Ignore her. Ignore her. Pretend you don't care about it. And then she won't care about it either. That is insane. Because she knew exactly what she was doing. And so instead, when she reached for the bunny, I would, like my kid does now, just shove her as hard as I could. And she would fall down. That's what I was going for. And she would burst into tears. And my mom would come running in and comfort her and ask me what happened. And from my place back on the couch snuggling my bunny, I would just say, I don't know. I guess she fell. Like, I would just stone-cold lie, (laughs) right? And this didn't happen once, you guys. It happened, like, dozens, maybe hundreds of times before she started talking. (laughs) And a few times after that. Um, I'm telling you this story because today's scripture in the Sermon on the Mount is about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies. And I know for certain (laughs) that I have been deeply committed to vengeance and getting even at least as far back as two and a half years old when my sister was born. And so I am aware that I might be the wrong person to be preaching about this topic, but I'm who you get. So let's hear the word of God, shall we? Because we need it. I need it. Here we go. This is what it says. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. So this is starting off again with that familiar, you have heard that it was said, refrain, that reminds us that Jesus is quoting from the law. And last week I was saying that the law, in its simplest, most straightforward form, is the Ten Commandments. But this particular phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, doesn't come from the Ten Commandments. Those were uh, the ten statements that form the moral law for the, for the Jews. And then there are several places, like in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in particular, where huge chunks of writing are devoted to expanding the moral law and applying it to society. They're sort of making a civil law, which was important because the, the nation of Israel was just beginning to be formed. And so they're building their civil law um, through the expansion of this moral law. And there's a lot in that writing, um, and particularly today's piece, that was specifically written to give guidance to judges about how to administer justice um, when it comes to damage done to property or to people. 
So this little phrase, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, comes from Exodus 21. And I'm going to read you a little bit, starting in verse 22, so you can kind of understand where did that come from. And remember that it's written as guidance for judges in a court when someone has a grievance against someone else. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury... The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. An owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. And then this also shows up in Leviticus 24, verses 17 through 22. And here it says, Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and for the native born. I am the Lord your God. And so when we read those, I hope you can see, as, as, as I was starting to, you can see the center of the law. Remember that from last week? I was talking about the idea that um, there's a center, a true heart or spirit of the law. That's what God really wants for his people. And, and the outside edge of the law is just the limit to stop you from going further away from the center. And the center here is to value and protect human life. Humans, Leviticus tells us, they're different from animals. But locals and foreigners are not different from each other. They are the same. All human beings are made in the image of God. And that image needs to be treated with honor and care. That's the center of the law. And then the outside edge is that if you should inflict injury on a human being, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you pay for that. You either make monetary restitution or you free your slave or the same damage is inflicted on you in return. And usually by the time Jesus is writing and teaching, people would pay damage. They'd pay some money. They'd pay damages like we do now. Um, Because mostly it doesn't really help the victim to have someone else's hand cut off as well. Right? Like if you get your hand cut off, it doesn't really help you out to have the person who did it get their hand cut off. Although you might... I don't know. It depends how much vengeance you want. Okay. Um, but sometimes that kind of thing was taken literally. And actually, there's still some societies today where, you know, families of murder victims are permitted to kill that murderer. To take life for life. And here, okay, so here's the other thing that the law does. 
it holds our propensity, our leaning towards vengeance in check. So it both means that when you say we're going to have an eye for an eye and that's it, it means that judges are not, they're not going to be allowed to just let someone off. If somebody does something, the judge can't say, oh, it's just an accident. You don't deserve to be punished for that. And also, it won't allow them unrestrained vengeance, right? They're not going to be able to say, you can kill that person for stealing your, like, camel. Let's say camel. Okay. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a way that the legal system administers and defines justice. And it's actually pretty good. Like, it sounds pretty fair. Um, No more than what was done to you and no less. That's pretty good. So why is Jesus asking us to move further? Why does he say, do not resist an evildoer or turn the other cheek? John Stott is a theologian from the 20th century who many of us have been shaped by. And he says that Jesus is making a distinction here between um, the courts where these principles, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, rightly belong, they're good in the court system, and personal relationships where, at least for the Christian, they do not, they don't belong. He says this, he says, Jesus does not deny that the one who wronged us is evil. He asks us neither to pretend that he's other than he is, nor to condone his evil behavior. But what Jesus does not allow is that we retaliate. It's very profound. In courts, okay, an eye for an eye. But in our personal relationships, no. Christians cannot, are not permitted to retaliate against an evil person. They don't have to pretend, mind you, that what was done to them was okay. We don't have to say it was okay. We don't have to justify what happened by saying maybe, oh, he's a good guy at heart. He must have meant well. We can tell the truth. That was awful. This should never have happened to me. That was evil, even. But we cannot retaliate. If we are following Jesus, we can't hit back. Now, when I was preparing for this sermon series, just kind of thinking about it, um, way back before Tom went on sabbatical, he told me about um, really good writing, this great interpretation of this text that he had studied when he preached on the Sermon on the Mount um, in 2012. So if any of you were here and heard that series in 2012, um, I hope you don't mind that we're revisiting this. I thought seven years was long enough. We could come back around. Um So Walter Wink teaches about this, and he says that each example that Jesus describes in this teaching uses nonviolent resistance to expose the evil behavior of the perpetrator, bring it to light, and shame them for doing it, hopefully to turn them to repentance. In scripture, sometimes this is described as heaping burning coals on their heads, which is about like like making them burn with shame for it. Okay, so let's just look quickly at these examples. 
what, the first one is this, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, I don't do a lot of striking of anyone anymore. Um, or ever, I don't know, like since my sister. Okay, um, but I do get that it's hard for a right-handed person, which people were when this was written, they were all right-handed, so, or, you know, they were made to be, sorry, if you're left-handed. I get that it's hard for a right-handed person to slap someone's right cheek, right? It has to be a backhanded slap. Do you want to try that? So like turn to, I know, so turn to your neighbor just to like get why it's hard. Turn to your neighbor. Don't really hit him because I don't want to do that again. Um, okay, turn, turn to your neighbor and with your right hand, just try to figure out like how could I, you got to face them. You got to face your neighbor. Come on, it's interactive. I'm up here all the time. Turn and face your neighbor. Okay. And then see how hard it is. It's hard to get their right hand with your hand, like, right? Because their cheek is opposite your hand. So what's the only way you can do it? With the back, it's got to be a backhanded slap. Like you can't get it like this. That's their other cheek. Okay. So that's the point. So it has to be a backhanded slap. It's not a real hit. And in this time, in the biblical time, this backhanded slap, it's not really meant to hurt you. It's meant to demean you or insult you, right? We slap someone like this when it's, they're not really worth our time. It's not really worth it for not really, you're not hitting them like an equal. You're just insulting them. I don't know what this is. Yeah, okay. That's why I'm not the one who's hitting people. Okay, um, it's a, it's a put down. And offering the other cheek, offering the left cheek, isn't really about submitting. It's not about saying, just keep hitting me. It's an invitation for the person to follow through, to really hit you and mean it, treat you like an equal opponent. It's a way of insisting on your own value as a person, right? You can't, don't just demean me. If you're going to hit me, hit me. And the idea is that it shames them for the way that they're treating you as being somehow beneath themselves. The next example is this. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your cloak as well. Now, there are some cultural pieces uh, that we don't get naturally when we hear this. First of all, in this time, poor people usually had only two pieces of clothing. They had a shirt and they had a cloak. Second, taking a poor person's garment was utterly forbidden in the law because they'd be exposed to the elements outside, to the sun and to the cold, with no protection. And third, seeing someone naked in that culture was deeply shameful, not just for the person who was naked, but for everyone who saw it, deeply shameful. And so what's happening here is that someone is suing a poor man in court and trying to take everything he has, including the shirt off his back. It's abusive. Even if the poor man owes him money, they should not be left with nothing. And so 
to give the accuser not only the shirt, but also the cloak, the only other piece of clothing that you have, is essentially stripping naked in front of the court, which is where this would be taking place. And it brings into sharp focus for everyone just exactly what's happening here, that the accuser is taking everything and leaving the poor person destitute. Stripping naked and handing over everything you have will shame the accuser and potentially cause them to see themselves in a new light. The third example. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. This one is so interesting and so specific. I can't imagine how we would ever make sense of this if we didn't know the context, which is that Roman soldiers were allowed to stop anyone along the road and force them to carry something for one mile, which might be what's going on in the gospel stories when we hear that Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry Jesus' cross on the way to the crucifixion. They can stop anyone they want. They can ask you to force you to carry anything, but only for one mile. And if they abuse that power and force you to go further, there were huge consequences for them. And Roman roads were all very neat and tidy. They were great at systems. So there were mile markers at every mile. So you absolutely knew how long it was going to be. So when you've been singled out on the road, and forced to set down whatever baggage you were carrying to either rot in the sun or be stolen, right, and carry a soldier's pack, even though they're probably on a horse, okay, that's clearly a situation where a soldier is oppressing you. He's using his power and disregarding you as a person. But when you reach the mile marker, instead of setting the pack down and storming back to get your own stuff, you keep on going. And the soldier starts to get agitated, right? Because he's not allowed to make you walk further than that. He's yelling at you to put it down, but you exercise your freedom and you're expressing your own power by walking the second mile, showing him that he does not control you that you are, in fact, his equal in that moment. That kind of cultural information is so interesting and so valuable. It helps us understand what Jesus is saying so much more clearly. right? He's telling us that no matter what, we are never powerless. Even in the face of oppression and evil, there is always something we can do to hold on to our own value and dignity as human beings, as image bearers of God. It's a really beautiful teaching. And it makes so much sense because we are always trying to act in the image of Jesus, following his example. And Jesus was never a doormat, not even during his arrest and crucifixion, when he faced unimaginable evil with grace and dignity and without resistance. It's really beautiful. And here's my problem. My problem is 
Tom told me about that teaching like four months ago. And my heart has been just a little too delighted at the opportunity to teach that all of this stuff is really about showing someone up and beating them at their own game. Right? <sighs> Sorry. It's a lot of sharing from your pastor this morning. Um, like, I've just been a little bit too excited about teaching about exposing their evil deeds and heaping burning coals on their head until they burn into a little pile of ashes. Because <sighs> no matter how much I wish it was, I am, I am absolutely sure that that is not what Jesus was talking about. And that is why I know that I need the second part of this text from this morning. So I'm going to read the second part to you, and it goes like this. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes sun to shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So again, he's starting out with, you have heard that it was said. He's referencing a law they're familiar with. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, actually, this is a common and convenient um, interpretation of a law in Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And the rabbis, the teachers of the law, were equating your own people with neighbor because they're mentioned together. So they were teaching that you had to love as yourself, Only those who were among your own people or basically your own ethnic group, Jews, right? And since they said the law doesn't specifically mention enemies, well, obviously, naturally, we must be allowed and supposed to hate our enemies. So it's some pretty neat mental gymnastics that they're doing to get to a point where they can say, love the people who are on your side who are like you, and hate people who aren't. And never mind that it contradicts so many provisions in God's law to look out for and care for the foreigner and the alien. It was a widely accepted interpretation of the law. People loved this interpretation of the law. Of course they did. It's a far outside edge. (laughs) It's easy. And Jesus' correction is pointing us to the true intention and spirit of the law that we would love and pray for everyone, including and maybe especially our enemies. Why would we do that? Why would I do that? He says, it's so that I can be a child of God, so that I can be part of God's line, So that I can be a citizen of this new kingdom and model my life after the king himself. The example 
of God is that he brings sun and rain equally on the crops of both good and evil people. He blesses both of them without discrimination. God does not discriminate between people who love and follow him and people who don't. I want to say that again. I really want us to understand that. God does not discriminate between people who love and follow him and people who don't. He is not more concerned with the life of a Christian than with the life of a Muslim. He's not more interested in blessing someone who goes to church every week than someone who has never darkened the door. He doesn't show favoritism. And as his children, as his citizens, we should not either. There are a couple of rhetorical questions in this passage. Um, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? The implied answer is none, no reward. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Nothing. That's the implied answer. They're basically saying, if you love your neighbors and hate your enemies, you are living exactly the same way that everyone else lives. It's the bare minimum, the far outside edge to just love people who already love you. But Jesus isn't talking to people who are going to live the same way as everyone else lives. He's talking to his followers, to people who love him, who obey him, who model their lives after his. Like he's literally up on a mountain with the people who have been following him. He's talking to you, friends, and to me. And he's inviting us toward the center. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love and intercede for everyone, no matter how they treat you. When these two pieces of scripture are taken together, and of course, I'm sure that's why they're written together, Jesus is telling us that when people treat us badly, when we're put down or mistreated, first of all, we should not retaliate, but rather give more than was asked for. Turn the other cheek. And in so doing, shame that person into recognizing their evil ways. Second, though, and if you're like me, this is the part you need to hear. Even as you're doing that, it is not to come from a heart of hatred or vengeance or proving you're right. It comes from a heart that loves deeply and longs for the transformation of the person in front of you, the person who hurt you. To pray for someone is acting who is acting toward you in a way that is evil, that might be the most difficult thing to do. Intercession just means to pray to pray for someone, to get in front of God on someone's behalf. And that, like, that means that in prayer, you are walking up beside the person who hurt you, standing beside them, with them, and begging God on their behalf. That's a very powerful image. The best example is Jesus praying while they were nailing his hands to the cross. 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the spirit that is supposed to infuse all the retaliation examples from before. A genuine desire for people to see the error of their ways, not so that they'll just be a puddle, right? Not so that we win, so that they will turn to God and be forgiven and saved by him. I am not there yet. (laughs) Even as I was writing this sermon, I was aware of some examples in my life, people who've wronged me that I don't know if I feel that way towards them yet. But I want to. And I I mean that. Um, And wanting to be in a place where, where we can genuinely pray and intercede for people who persecute us, it reminds me of an earlier text in this sermon series, in the King's Speech, where we said, Jesus said, not we, he did, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount, all of these instructions, all of these places where Jesus is asking us to go further, to be better, they have to be taken in context. We have to understand them in light of the Beatitudes at the beginning, those blessed are statements that tell us the truth about our identity as kingdom citizens. Otherwise, the whole sermon just feels like a long list of rules that becomes impossible to keep. And that's not what he was doing. It's not about being perfect. It's about loving Jesus. And longing to be transformed more and more into his own image. And trusting that he will bring that to pass in us. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey. Whether you're finding Jesus for the first time, or you have been following him for years. If you have been listening for a while... Perhaps you're wondering how you can support the church financially. To find out, please go to ericksoncovenant.ca and click on the Donate tab. Thank you for being part of this journey with us. Every day we are seeking to help people to find and follow Jesus.